Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NELA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NELA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And thanks for coming back. Welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the Employment Law Podcast. I am Max Barrick. And I'm Amit Bindra. And we have officially mastered getting our names on the show. It only took us about 20 tries. (laughs) Which was not certain the first few times. Thank you again for coming back to us. We are talking again with one of our favorite guests, Elizabeth Ricks, the legal director and staff attorney for Chicago House and Social Service Agency. Elizabeth also works with the legislature and had worked on several bills during the last legislative session, which we talked about on our last episode, which I'd encourage you to go back and listen to. Elizabeth, thank you for joining us again. Thank you for having me. We covered your legislative work last time, and we did talk about some of your work with Chicago House, but we thought we'd dive a little bit more into that and just about your story personally. So remind us again, generally, just give us a brief overview of what Chicago House does. So Chicago House generally as an organization provides housing and medical care and SDI testing for people living with HIV and AIDS and who are considered um, higher risk for HIV and AIDS. And then within that, they have a program just for trans and gender expansive people. And that provides linkage to housing, medical care, employment services, and then legal, which is obviously what I do. And we do direct legal services and in a variety of practice areas, employment, public benefits, criminal records, name changes, and we also do legislative advocacy. So what are some of the employment issues that they face that people come (laughs) to you and that you try to help with? And I think it's a very broad question. And it's probably a long answer for this one. Yeah, a lot of misgendering. And I think, so I think one of the most common that comes up is coworkers, like people who are on equal level of my clients, refusing to use the correct pronouns or the name that the person goes by if they haven't had a legal name change. And the employer instead of following the law or sometimes even their own internal non-discrimination policy feels that this is just a difference of opinion that, oh, well, the employee who's doing the misgendering, don't they have a right to do that? And and, I know because if you're allowing your staff or even you doing it as a supervisor or manager, if you're using people's pronouns correctly for every employee, except for your trans employee, and that's creating an unsafe work environment for them. They've asked you to stop. It becomes sort of harassment level. That is not permitted under the Illinois Human Rights Act. And now, thankfully, Supreme Court has ruled it's also not permitted under Title VII. So it's not a difference of opinion. I wish that supervisors, managers, employers would stop seeing this as a some sort of both sides issue with their employees. No, one of your employees is harassing and discriminating against another employee. That's what it is. There's no, it, the poor First Amendment, everyone misuses it, right? I hear that a lot from employers too. Well, isn't the First Amendment, and I'm not talking about government employers, I'm talking about like retail stores, right? I, I just don't think, you know, we can force our workers to use the pronouns for this person. Freedom of speech, that, what? <laughs> that's not how this works. So that's a pretty common issue. And also for people who haven't had legal name changes, the idea that you, 
they, employers are correct. You cannot put a name on a W-2 that is not someone's legal name. It doesn't mean that the name someone goes by can't go on a name tag. I have a friend whose name on his birth certificate is John and he goes by the name Jake. And Jake is not a nickname for John. It's not his middle name. That's just the name he's always gone by. And he has never once had an employer say, well, no, we can't put that on the receipt that you print out at your station or name tag. It seems to only really be an issue when it's for trans employees. You know, I, cause I'll ask about what names are on the name tags for their cisgender employees. Oh, well, we have a CJ. Well, is CJ the name on the birth certificate? Oh, it's not. So there is some, sometimes just conversations about guidance for employers that does not thankfully amount to a legal matter. Most of my, like most people who meet with me, if they haven't left their job, don't want to leave their job. Or if they, you know, experience wrongful termination or constructive discharge, they want to go back to their job. People don't like being unemployed. They just want to not work in a hostile work environment. That's not safe for them. So is that, that was my, the thing I was thinking about. So often in these situations, you're not necessarily filing a lawsuit. You're more maybe writing an angry letter to a company to say, hey, this is wrong. We need to fix this. Right. And, and generally that's how the client wants to start. That's depending on the facts, usually what I would recommend. Because we all know once you file something, it gets a lot harder to come to an agreement about anything and to get people to change their patterns and practices. I think another issue that I see a lot is hiding behind their two-page anti-discrimination policy in the employee handbook, as if that is some sort of a shield that controls people's behavior. Because I hear a lot, well, that couldn't possibly have happened that way. We have an anti-discrimination policy. Well, okay. I would like you like it if you could get your employees to follow it. And if you have, a lot of times there's no enforceability provision. So it's just, we have this policy, but there's no language around what happens if someone violates it. And they don't sometimes even have any kind of actual ideas of what their procedure would be if someone violates it. And that's, that's a real problem. But they do like, I've seen a lot of employers just as if it somehow creates a force shield that means this behavior is le like legitimately impossible to have occurred. It, I mean, well, we see it, right? Like in all areas of anti-discrimination work, like you take a deposition or you defend a case. And one of the first things that gets thrown in front of everybody is the anti-discrimination policy and the statistics about look how many people of color or look how many, look how many minorities we have mm -hmm. here. We could not possibly have picked on this one. Look how many others we're friends with. And it's like, yeah, that's not really relevant. <laughs> it really has no bearing on what your other employee did. You, you mentioned Title VII earlier and you mentioned, you know, gender discrimination and harassment. There's a there's an old test that I don't I know it wasn't employed initially in an in a transgender rights setting, but there's a Pricewaterhouse Coopers Supreme Court decision that we'll see sometimes in a gender stereotyping case. Do you ever find you know basically I think that case was a female employee who didn't conform to she wasn't uh, feminine enough to move up the ladder. She was too I don't know whatever she was too masculine and aggressive. Right. And we always hear code language like that in those cases. Well, you've burned bridges, you're abrasive, you don't play well with others, which is in those cases, in my experience, typically code for you're a woman who didn't just say yes, thank you to everything I told you. Do you do you ever find yourself employing that test? Is that a vehicle you'll ever use in representing folks in these cases, that sort of thing? It, I mean, obviously, it's fact dependent. I did have a case where the other side's claim for why 
it was understandable supposedly that a supervisor for months on end would misgender an employee was because they didn't feel that the employee looked like a woman as they put it because this person didn't wasn't a barbie stereotype and if a cisgender woman had short hair and didn't wear makeup i think except for really outlier companies most people now recognize what sex stereotyping is but um expecting people to conform to those standards definitely happens and and i mean and that and price waterhouse was a big part of the lift for the you know boss staff decision that happened last year yeah and that's a good segue too have you noticed maybe a positive change since that decision last summer again in, in workplace behavior <laughs> yeah sorry in workplace behavior is it easier now um, to work with companies to say hey this is now also illegal under title seven has that been pushing companies or is it too soon to tell no i think it's too soon to tell i, I think i got asked that a lot when like the week of the decision about do you think this will change things and i I don't know. I mean, I it would be great if it did, but I think really what it does is creates a, a more sense of relief for people living in states that don't have a robust human rights act like we do or who are federal employees. I believe that's um, half, that was half the states, right? As of, I remember doing the research. Oh, sorry. 23, about, yeah, about half. So I, I think, it's, and it's just, it is helpful, I think, for people who are predominantly represent government employees I mean, multiple circuits had already found Title VII applied to transgender discrimination. It's, it's just, I guess I'm in a bubble, but it seemed very clear to me. And I spent a lot of one summer in law school just doing Title VII research as applied to trans discrimination. So it always seemed very clear to me. EEOC you know, had guidance saying Title VII applied. So it was just good to have it cleared up. It also could have gone, I think cisgender people didn't understand how much was on the line for them too, because it could have completely undone Pricewaterhouse too, if if the court agreed with the government's claim that as long as you discriminate against men and women, it's fine. So as long as you're firing men who like to bake and women who wear pants, there's no discrimination. It, I mean, it could have been really destructive and I'm so thankful that we got the decision that we did. I'm pleasantly surprised, I, you know, like, given the makeup of the court right now, I don't think any of that was really very assured. No, you know, in oral argument, like listening to it, I, I didn't want to get my hopes up, but it did seem like Gorsuch was gettable. He seemed to understand it, but then had his panic of, well, what would this do to the public? Wouldn't it just be, you know, mayhem and thankfully... Uh, the attorney doing the Stevens case, which was the case related to gender identity, was able to answer that in a polite, direct way of, we have two trans attorneys at council table, the world has not ended. And I, I was relieved. I can tell you when the morning the decision came down, everyone's trying to load it and it's crashing. And then, you know, everyone's sort of on this like trans legal listserv and we're emailing like whoever gets the PDF first, send it out. And then someone's like, all I can see is that Gorsuch wrote the opinion. And it was this moment of like... <laughs> Oh, no. this could really go either way. I and still, it's like the AC, it's like the ACA when it came out when you saw who wrote the majority. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and it's still surprising to me that Gorsuch wrote that type of decision in the way he wrote it. I, 
I can't wrap my head around that. Uh, I'm happy, but I, I'm still not understanding that. So when we were talking just in our prep, I think we realized we overlapped in law school for a bit and didn't realize it at the time. Yeah. So that brings me to kind of an interesting question of how did you end up at Chicago House? Luck and more luck. I So an attorney that I was at the Transformative Justice Law Project with for a very long time, 09 to 2015, is an overachiever and he's also a social worker. So <laughs> he is a social worker at Chicago House and their legal director had to take unexpected leave. And so they brought me in for you know, 20 hours a week just until their legal director came back because they needed someone who knew how to do name changes, who knew the law around these. And then that person decided to move on to something else and I, they kept me. So it was just really one of those moments of connections, sort of stars aligning, good fortune. What we learned from you in prep and kind of getting ready for this is that one of the other interesting parts of your career is you've been an attorney and a law student with a chronic illness, and that's had an effect and shaped who you are. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that's impacted your career? And I think yeah. just, to, just to add on to that, in the last episode, too, you had mentioned you yourself identifying as queer, too. So elaborate, too, how that's impacted your legal career. So it's, it's, it's interesting that you asked that question because I... I had not until very recently ever even thought about how my health impacted my career or as part of my identity. I have two chronic illnesses, but the one I've had the longest is, is mental health. I have bipolar disorder. And I, I think we have socialized people to think of the brain as so separate from the rest of the body that we don't think about mental health as actual health. And so we, people like me get socialized to just like hide it. Don't talk about it. It's not real just be normal, normal, normal. And I, but then I got asked to sit on a panel about diversity and people kept asking questions about, well, how does being a queer woman impact your career? And other than an uncomfortable employment situation I had where someone I was working for, a man who felt that because I was queer, I would want to talk about women with him in a very inappropriate way. Um, and sometimes also being sort of tokenized of like, well, what do all bisexual people think? Well, I don't know, <laughs> I can just tell you about me. It hasn't, I've been lucky, I think, because I'm very femme that I, it hasn't had a huge negative impact on my career at all. And, and in talking on this panel, it's like, you know what, so what really has had an impact is having this illness because in law school, I couldn't do all, I can't drink caffeine. I have to be very mindful of, of things that we socialize, I think, and teach lawyers to, to give up, which is just general caretaking and just see how much of this really unmanageable workload you can get through. And I tried to keep up with my classmates for the first two years and it did, my body did not like it. It did not work. And I just kept trying to behave like a neurotypical person, but that's not how my body was made. It's not how my brain functions. And once I let go of that a little bit and really started accepting that I can't do all-nighters, I can't compete with my classmates about who got the least amount of sleep or you know, who's grinding the hardest or even how I process information or you know memory impacts those sorts of things once I sort of embraced who I am and what and just this is my brain and this is how it functions things got a lot better for me and a lot easier instead of trying to conform to what my classmates were able to do and, it, and it's the same in my career 
I, you know, sometimes my memory isn't as great as everyone else's, but I've learned how to get around it and how to keep track of things. And, and that I can't, I, I don't think I would be able to work at a firm where I'm expected to work 6am to, you know, 1am and sleep in a cot in my office and grind, grind, grind till you make partner. I just, I wouldn't be able to, to sustain that. And I think it seemed like right before COVID there was, there was a national conversation happening about lawyers and mental health. And, and sometimes the mental health issues were sort of caused by the work and weren't a chemical issue necessarily, but really having to push against what we're supposed to be as lawyers, especially as a woman, there is, I think, just this desire that we come out of law school, like, you know what, I can work the hardest. I can do them. And having to push against that and learning how to push against that is the only way I've been able to succeed and, and to know what my capabilities are. And then I'm never going to probably never going to be at a big firm because that just isn't a pace that I can keep up with. And that's okay. Law, during law school, I would try to identify the folks who wanted to brag about not sleeping just so I knew who not to hang out with. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it sounds like, did this realization to you come, was it third year of law school? Was it later in your mm -hmm. career of how to kind of balance things in a more healthy way? Yeah, it was, it was third year of law school when I just, it just felt like things weren't, when I was in an internship position or working outside of class in sort of a more contained time environment, right? None of my internships expected me to do more than my hours. And when I wasn't surrounded by this culture of feeling like I needed to assimilate to how everyone else seemed to be doing, I was fine. I was great. I was, the you know, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is what I feel like my, what I meant to do with my life. And school wasn't, wasn't clicking for me that way. And I've always really liked school. I mean, I went and got a master's degree sort of just for fun. So like school has never been something I disliked, but, and I wasn't used to it not working. And I finally talked with my healthcare provider about it and said, like, I don't know what's going on, but this isn't working for me the way I feel like it should. And she, well, maybe we need to adjust your medication, but we also need to talk about what the rest of your life looks like and, and what you can and can't do and to kind of try to drop the comparison game. And that's when things got a lot better. And also just being more open and talking about the fact that some of my needs are different from my classmates. I mean, I wish if I could tell other law students who have any kind of chronic illness that might create extra needs, take advantage of accommodations. And, but I think in law school, I, at least I remember my first year being told that a woman's water broke during finals and she finished her final. So you have no excuse. And so it's not like, at least in 2006, there wasn't really space to talk about if, if you have a need that's different from the majority of your classmates. But I really, if I could go back, I really wish that I would have talked about with folks about accommodations and just being okay with a person who's you know, been living with a chronic mental illness since I was a kid. And this is what, who I am and what I need to, to do this job well. Well, and it, it's kind of crazy as I sit here listening to your story and the things that you wish you had done or do or need to do and the things that we reward as an industry, like it's insane. Like the things you're suggesting and asking and advocating for are basically be a normal person, feel comfortable and tolerate others and yourself 
having limitations, not being a superhuman and prioritize self-care and taking care of yourself and others. And don't kick the ever-loving hell out of yourself and compete over who can take the worst care of themselves and work the hardest at their own expense. Like if you think about the perverse incentive just incentive structure you're describing, the the only insane thing is the people not doing what you're doing, which we're all, I mean, look at Ahmed. He doesn't even eat real food. He drinks powder every day. The powder is great. Speaking of which, <laughs> I just realized this. It's 6.05 on a Friday. And so we've got to get you out of here. We have two last things I think for you. One would just be circling back to Chicago house. What are some, how, how do people volunteer? How can we help? How can we do more to help the organization? So in terms of, donations are great. <laughs> I'm just not even going to try and gift wrap that. Donations are always needed, particularly for the legal program. We don't take sort of hands-on participatory volunteers. I do have an intern every semester, usually love, a, love an intern. I love working with law students. And we, and also we're always looking for like firms that might want to do pro bono or to do partnership with us because our, again, our funds are limited. And so we can only take things so far sometimes. And so it's helpful. And also just, I mean, just selfishly as being the only attorney in my organization, it's helpful to have resources to just like other brains to bounce ideas off of. So we do a spring brunch the first Sunday of May every year. This year it was virtual. Hopefully next year it'll be in person. And it's a fashion show and a flower show and champagne and it's really fun. That sounds awesome. And, then, and hopefully next yeah. year it'll be in person and all of that. Yeah, I'm in. I hope so. You said the first yeah. Sunday in May? Yep. Okay. Elizabeth, if people do want to donate and help the organization out, how do they do that? What's the easiest and best, what's the easiest way for them to do it? And what's the best way for them to do it to help the organization? Go to chicagohouse.org. There should be a donate button on the website. And there should be a section where you can put in who you're donating to. If you want to support this legal work, you can put in that you want to, your funds to go to Translegal. Great. And then Ahmed, do you want to do your favorite bit? Yeah, you have, we did this last time, so we got to do it again. Who is your shout out of the week? And it can't be your paralegal. Not again. No, it, yeah. it, it can be your paralegal it if can, you want to but... shout them out again, but I, I'm assuming I do there a, are others. Can I do it? Two people shout out? Oh, but for sure. The same, no, for the same forbidden. Okay. Delete the episode. She's done. Listen, I told you that I've been a rule breaker. I'm not <laughs> traditional. So I want to sh shout out the policy folks at Equality Illinois, Mike Ziri and Kadeem Bennett at the ACLU of Illinois. Being a one person shop is really, really tough. And they have partnered on a lot of our policy initiatives and have taught me so much and have really gone above and beyond what would ever be expected of someone in terms of giving me support and education and helping me grow. And I'm constantly sort of in awe of their generosity of time and spirit. So Kadeem Bennett at ACLU, Mike Siri at Equality Illinois, amazing people doing phenomenal policy work in, in our state. That's awesome. Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming back again and talking about your really important work and helping educate folks on the challenges and the legal issues that face transgender individuals every day and, and how we can all help with that. Thanks for your important work and for, for talking to us. Thanks for having me. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.